Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our Sunday school time here at the Kerwinsville Christian Church. And we are progressing right through our survey through the Old Testament. We're in the books of First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles. We're entitling uh, this section of our study, uh, Israel's Kings and Prophets. And we're in lesson five today, and we're going to focus on Solomon's latter years. And in particular, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 10 through chapter 11, verses 43. And then as well, looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 31. Now, I think I need to kind of point out to you that while there is a lot of overlap between the two books as far as the material, there are some things that the writer of Chronicles does not record, and usually it ends up being what goes bad with uh, one of the sons of David. So for instance, remember when Chronicles was covering David's life, it kind of neglected the whole Bathsheba incident and Absalom and all of that. We're actually going to see that today with Solomon's life with regards to uh the whole issue of his apostasy, which we're going to see in chapter 11. Chronicles doesn't mention that at all. But what we want to do is we want to go through all of this material and talk about his latter years. And I'll be honest with you, again, this is narrative, this is history. Uh, you are to see what God wants you to see from this passage. And while he starts off great, he doesn't end well. And, and that's really sad when you think about it. In particular, it's going to be noted that Solomon had a privilege that a lot of people don't have. And with that, he didn't end well. And so we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through the lesson. Now, again, there's a lot of material here when we're talking about covering all of these chapters in two different books of the Bible. So we're not going to read these together, but we will go through the material so that you understand. So let's start off, first of all, we're going to look at chapter 9, verse 10, through chapter 10, verse 29 of 1 Kings, to look at the whole issue of his achievements. This is also covered in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 31. Now, First thing I want you to notice is this, is that the writer of Kings records that Solomon gave Hiram, king of Tyre, 20 cities in Galilee. Now, I think it should be noted that uh, this is probably one of the first instance, instances that uh, you see the area of northern Israel being referred to as Galilee. So this is a long-running designation to that area, and we would see that also being referred to later on in the Gospels where most of Jesus' ministry took place. But in this area of northern Israel, Solomon gives Hiram, king of Tyre, which is, Tyre is in what is now modern-day um, modern uh, Lebanon, in the area of Sidon in that day, he gave him 20 cities in, this, in Galilee. Now, Hiram actually was a little disappointed, okay, because the scripture records that he went down from Tyre to visit these cities that Solomon had given him. So Hiram was disappointed with the city since they were near 
unproductive land, or kabul. Kabul is a term describing the nature of the fact that it was unproductive. And here's what I want you to see, verse 13, and he called them the land of kabul as they are to this day. Basically unproductive. It wasn't really a good area for cities, not good for farm production or other resources or minerals. And Hiram was kind of disappointed with that. And I guess you would be. You know, here, here's something for my friend, but it's kind of worthless. Now, Chronicles, excuse me, Kings will tell us that Hiram, of course, when he gave gold, he's, it's been referred to earlier in Kings, he gave gold to Solomon. He gave Solomon 120 talents of gold. That's a significant amount of gold. Now, the chronicler records that Solomon gave cities, settled the cities that Hiram had given him. So it's kind of a mutual exchange here. You know, Solomon gives Hiram some cities, Hiram gives Solomon some cities, and he settles in these cities. Now, from there, we move to, in uh, 1 Kings, we move to where it discusses the issue of Pharaoh. Now remember, Pharaoh is Solomon's father-in-law because of this peace treaty that was designated between the two of them, and Pharaoh gave his daughter to be uh, Solomon's wife. So the writer records that Pharaoh went up and seized Gezer from the Canaanites. Now, I just need you to recognize that, as is always true in this time period, Egypt is considered a world power. It's considered a strategic power. And a lot of the conflicts between the world powers, which we're going to see as we progress along within this whole issue of the survey of the Old Testament, you, you're going to see, of course, the Syrians, Assyria. You're going to see the Babylonians. And we see Egypt. And there's always this, this kind of conflict between the rulers of Mesopotamia and so forth. And, and in the middle of all of that is kind of the battleground of everything, which is what was Canaan or now Israel. And so Pharaoh, he goes up and he seizes Gezer from the Canaanites there, kills everyone, burns the city. After burning it, Pharaoh gave it to Solomon as a dowry for his daughter. You're saying he gave him a burnt city? Well, the reality is, is he gave him the location. He gave him a part of Canaan that obviously was not uh, belonging to Israel at that point, and so now it's being given to Solomon as a dowry for his daughter. Okay, a dowry is kind of a wedding gift from the family. Now, Scripture records that Solomon rebuilt Gezer and built up storage cities throughout Israel. Now, what do you mean by storage cities, George? Well, these would be locations where would would be centrally located to store up grain, food resources, as well as military hardware throughout all of Israel. It's designating a source of strength and power. And, and I'll be honest with you, it's kind of reflecting here that Israel has moved from just being basically tribes who are 
are basically loosely organized who come together to fight major battles, which sometimes they lose. But now it's more of a national thing now in which they are strategic in locating resources and, and, and military hardware and being strategic about uh, the whole issue of food and food resources. Now, the scripture goes on in this section of Kings. Chronicles mentions it as well. And it's going to tell you an aspect of Solomon that you and I probably would have a hard time with in our modern thinking. But it was considered part of the way things were back then. We saw it from when Joshua took Israel, made treaties with uh, different people, and they were forced to become laborers. Well, this whole thing of forcing people to become laborers continues on under Solomon. So from all of the Canaanite peoples who were left in the land, so that's the Hittites and the, you know, the Pizzerites and, and all of these different groups, they became forced labor. So from all of these groups, they took the men from these groups and they made them forced labor. What did they do with them? Well, remember, Solomon's got lots of building projects going on here. He's building the temple. He's building his palace. He's building the house of the forest of Lebanon. He's building his, his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, a palace. He's got several projects going on. Plus, he's building up all of these cities, making them storage cities, rebuilding cities. He's got a major national works project going on, and that requires laborers. So who do they use? They use the Canaanite peoples who were supposed to be dispelled from the land, but they're still there among them. They use them for forced labor. Now, the scripture is very clear that when it came to the Israelites... Well, Solomon did not make, make any from Israel to do forced labor since they served in the army. So basically, for the Israelites, of course, they had their farms, their, their, their inheritance that they would care for, but they weren't forced to do this labor. Rather, what they were to do was to serve in the army of Israel. Now, the scripture goes on then, and it kind of talks about some of the actions of Solomon and talking about his achievements and his success, and it talks about his reach, okay, the influence that he had in the area. Well, let's talk about the spiritual influence for a moment. The writer records that three times a year, Solomon offered sacrifices on the altar that he built, the altar that he built at the temple. He would offer sacrifices three times a year. Now, we've already noticed before when he's offered sacrifices, these are sacrifices that couldn't be counted because they were so innumerable. There were so many sacrifices, so many burnt offerings and so forth. Now, it also tells us that Solomon did something that was very interesting he, he built a fleet of ships on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Now, if you're looking at a map of Israel, Israel does not border the Red Sea at all. There's the Sinai Peninsula, but below them was basically Israel's cousin, Edom. Excuse me, brother, Edom or Esau. And But this time during Solomon's reign, 
Solomon kind of rules and subjects Edom to whatever it wants. We're going to see later why that has happened. It happened during the time of David. So Solomon, because he's basically the one who's in control of Edom, he's the all-known ruler, the world empire ruler at this time. This is the empire of, of Solomon. He builds a fleet of ships on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Now Hiram, okay, so Hiram, again, Tyre was an island off the coast of Sidon. So these are seafaring people. So he has a relationship with Hiram. Hiram supplied Solomon with sailors to work with the Israelites. So basically Hiram is providing the sailors to teach the Israelites how to sail. Because again, they're people of, of the mountains, of the hills. These are farmers. These are warriors. They're not, as you can see there, they're not able to do this. Now, with the ships, Solomon acquired 420 talents of gold from Ophir. Now, you're saying, Ophir, where is Ophir? <clears throat> well, that is the big discussion that's going on today in archaeological circles. Where is Ophir? The general consensus is, is that Ophir was located somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula. Okay? Somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula. Now, some of the more far-fetched suggestions that have taken place over the last two years, here's one of the most interesting ones. I kind of think this is a stretch, but... They, there is, was a guy sometime in the 1800s who wrote an art, wrote a book or whatever, postulating that Ophir was, are you ready for this, Peru in South America. Uh, that's kind of a stretch for Solomon to send ships that far for gold, if they would even make it back. But the point is, is that he acquired from Ophir, 420 talents of gold per year. So he's got a major supply of gold coming into Israel, into Jerusalem, into his kingdom. All right, so now we're going to talk about Solomon's glory. Okay, so we talked about his achievements. We've talked about his success. Now we're going to talk about his glory, and that's going to focus in on 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 29. It's also 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 9, verse 1 through 31. And the first one is a story that some of you know. It's made it into movies. Uh, there are legends about this. Legends, if you were to go to Ethiopia, they would talk about this. Uh, it's the Queen of Sheba. Now, the Queen of Sheba was, of course, the Queen over Sheba, which was in what we know today as modern-day Ethiopia. Now, the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame and visited him to test him. So she had heard all these stories about the glory and success and wisdom of Solomon. So she decides to go from Ethiopia, what we know as Ethiopia today, and visit him to test him. Okay, to test him. She arrived in Jerusalem with a large company and brought many precious gifts. 
So it's telling us here that she didn't just show up with an armed guard. She showed up with a huge amount of people, and they were carrying with them things like gold, spices of all various types, precious stones, other resources with her. So she arrives in Jerusalem. She spoke with Solomon about everything on her heart, and he answered every question. So basically, she consults with him about everything to test him. Remember, she's testing him. She's seeking out to see if this truly is the wise person that everyone says. And of course, she's looking at all of his glory here, all of his spectacularness. And we're going to see a little bit more about the glory of Solomon after we talk about Sheba, the queen of Sheba. So he answers every question. So after seeing his wisdom and all of his grandeur, she proclaimed that the reports were true. She, she makes a proclamation that everything that she's heard about Solomon is true. And the, the acclaim that is going on throughout all of the world about his richness, his grandeur, his wisdom were all true. Now, she gave, this is interesting, how they did things back then. She gave Solomon 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. So she basically brought him a gift. And we're not just talking any gift, folks. We're talking a major gift, okay, a huge gift. And then it says that in turn, Solomon gave her anything that she wanted and then she returned to her own country. Now, I'm going to share something with you that the Scripture does not say, okay? Scripture does not say, but is out there in legend, so just so you understand. So this, this story has significance to the people of Ethiopia. And so the legend is, is that she got pregnant by Solomon and came back to Ethiopia and bore their next king, who was related to Solomon. There's no scriptural proof of that. There's no other kind of historical proof to that whole issue. It's just a legend. But this story is very prominent in the thinking of, the, it really is even to this day, among those nations there concerning the queen of Sheba. Now let's talk about his glory a little bit more, how spectacular it is. When we talk about Solomon being rich and wise, now, we understand his wisdom. We've seen that already as we've gone through 1 Kings. But let's talk a little bit about his wealth, his richness, and, and, and the glory of his kingdom. Now, we're already seeing that Hiram has given him 120 talents of gold. Now the Queen of Sheba has given him 120 talents of gold. His sailors are bringing from Ophir 420 talents of gold each year. Well, this writer of kings makes it very clear what was coming into the kingdom during Solomon's reign. So Solomon received a yearly allotment of 666 talents of gold. He received a yearly allotment of this amount of gold each year. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Somebody like, oh, 666. Folks, this has no connection to Revelation and the Mark of the Beast. Let me just go ahead and say that to you. 
This is just the record of how many talents he received. There's no something supernatural or, or evil with this amount of money. It's just telling you how much it is. So don't read into it. Now, here's what he did with all that gold. Okay? Solomon made 200 shields of hammered gold that were 600 shekels for each shield. So he made 200 shields of gold. Each shield was about 200 shekels worth of gold. 200 shekels of gold for each shield. So he made 200 shields of hammered gold. Wow. That is pretty wild, all right? He also made an additional 300 shields of gold and put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Remember, he had this, this house that he had, kind of a palace-like place, so he made an additional 300 shields of gold made with an amount of, each made with a certain amount of gold, and he had them placed in the forest of Lebanon. Now, that's not all he did. This is where it just blows your mind, okay? He made a great throne of ivory. Now, ivory in itself is something very precious, very costly. We understand that today in our culture because of the poaching that takes place in Africa with among the rhino and especially among the, um, the elephants where ivory comes from. He made a great throne of ivory, and here's what he did. Not just a throne of ivory, but he overlaid it with gold. So it's not just spectacular in itself that it's a throne of ivory. He overlays the entire throne with gold. That just blows your mind. It also says that all of Solomon's drinking vessels were made of gold. So when you talk about the cup that he drank from, or the mug that he drank from, everything was made of gold, period. He drank from all of these gold vessels. That's how much gold is going on in this kingdom at the point, is that to the very things that he eats from, drinks from, they are gold. They're made of gold. In fact, the writer points out that silver was not used for anything since it was seen as worthless in the days of Solomon. Have you ever thought of that? Silver being worthless, that's not true in our culture today. Silver has its value. Gold has a greater value, but silver still has a value. But here it's saying that gold was so prevalent in Solomon's kingdom, silver was seen as basically as worthless. That just blows your mind at the description of what's going on here. And then it goes on and tells us that Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. There's no other king like Solomon. Hasn't been a king like him since. No other king like him up to this point. No other king at that point where he exists. He was a man beyond any other man as far as his kingship. And then the writer goes on and tells us that people from all over the known world, the world at that time, sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. So if you had a problem... You would travel from wherever you did were in that known world at that time, which was centered around the Mediterranean Sea. You traveled to hear the wisdom of Solomon to seek his place. Now, I'll be honest with you, uh, there was a cost. Each man brought Solomon a 
present of some good, and there's lots of goods that are listed in the scripture, at a rate that had been set each year. Now, I think this is interesting. I, I think it's almost administrative. If you want to come see Solomon, you got to bring a gift, and, and this is what you got to bring. You got to bring this much, or you got to bring this. That's the only way you can get in to see him. You had to, to pay to see him, and you understand that. I mean, I mean, he would be inundated with everybody forever if, he, if nobody with was no cost in seeing him, but everyone brought him a gift. And so that just continued to bring in more wealth to Solomon's kingdom. Just blows your mind, doesn't it? It goes on and it, it tells us a little bit more about Solomon's merchants. Solomon's merchants imported horses and chariots from Egypt and sold them to others. So they imported the horses and the chariots from Egypt and turned around and sold them to the other kingdoms around them. Now, here's where we come to chapter 11, and this is where we're going to end up at. And this is, to be very honest with you, probably the most difficult part of Solomon's life. It's his apostasy. Now, this is recorded in chapter 11, verses 1 to 43, now, we're also going to look at the very end of 2 Chronicles chapter 9, focusing on verses 29 through 31, which is going to focus on the record of his death. But with regards to his apostasy, that's primarily from 1 Kings chapter 11. So here's what I want you to notice, first of all. It says this, that the writer records that Solomon loved many women from the surrounding nations. So here's this guy with all of his wisdom, all of his wealth. There's nobody like him, but he's got a weak spot. You know what his weak spot is? Women. And he loved women. And you're going to see that he loved a lot of them. And that created a problem. He did this, that is Solomon did this. He did this in spite of the Lord's command not to intermarry with them. Remember, the Lord was very, very direct in telling Israel not to intermarry with the other nations. We saw that with what happened with the Amorites and what happened with regards to Israel getting connecting with the Amorites there, barracks uh, people, and, of course, God's judgment that happened upon them as a sign, you don't do this. Well, here the Lord is making it very clear not to intermarry with the women from these other nations. Well, Solomon did that. He warned, the Lord warned that they would turn Solomon's heart towards their foreign gods. This is why. Listen, there is a, a great understanding through Scripture here that you are to marry and have relationships within the belief that you have with Yahweh with regards to God. Because if you marry or, or whatever outside of that, you will be turned away from the Lord. That's the warning here. So Solomon was warned about this, to turn away from them, but they would turn his heart to their foreign gods. Now, here's what I want you to see. But Solomon rejected this because he clung to his wives in love. Solomon was brought to a place of decision. 
And that was, do I do what God called me to do? Do I do what he says? Remember, I'm supposed to follow in his ways. He's told me that on several occasions. Walk in my ways as your father did. Or do I do what I want? And what he wanted was the love of these women. I'm, I'm telling you folks, he was addicted to these ladies. And guess who won? His love for his wives. So he rejected God. Now, here's what happens. And here's how it happened. First of all, Solomon had, are you ready for this? This just blows your mind. We think about polygamy and we think about having two wives. Folks, this is polygamy to an extreme. Here it is. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines who turned his heart away from the Lord. So listen to me, folks. There's only 300, if you're going by a lunar calendar as they did, there's only 360 days in a year. But he's got 1,000 wives, 700 true uh, wives, 300 concubines who are lesser wives. He's got 1,000 wives. How do you give your attention to 1,000 wives when there's only 360 days in a year as far as the lunar calendar. How do you do that? Well, he's obviously caught up in women here. And they turn his heart away from the Lord. Basically, he's caught up in his lusts. We see that here. So Solomon went after the gods of the nations around them and built them altars. So listen, I'm going to name these to you. It's in chapter 11. Let me go ahead and uh, just read you what it says here. When we look at what's happening here. So, <clears throat> let me find the verse for you. Oh, here we go. Verse 5, and Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, which was one of the gods of the Canaanite people, the goddess of the Sidonians, so it's from Sidon as well, from Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as his father David. Now, it just doesn't stop there. It says this, verse 7, Solomon built a high place to Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incest and sacrificed to their gods. Wow! Here's this guy who builds the temple, he's following after David, he's been granted wisdom by the Lord. We're going to see something here in a moment it's specifically about him that just blows your mind when you think about it. And now because of his love, his lust for these women, he, his heart is turned away from the Lord and he goes and what? Goes after the gods of other nations around them and he builds them altars. Now, what happens with this? Well, how does the Lord respond to this? Well, that brings us to where you and I need to 
kind of reflect on what the Lord does here. And the fact of the matter is, is God doesn't leave us hanging out there just to do whatever we want. He responds. And here we see the Lord becomes angry. So the Lord became angry because Solomon turned away from the one who appeared to him. All right, now let's stop. Scripture records for us in the narrative of 1 Kings that God appeared to Solomon not once, but twice. God appeared to him initially to tell him, ask me what you want when he became king. And he said, I, I, will, uh, I just want wisdom to know how to rule your people. And the Lord gave him wisdom, but also said, I'll give you riches, but follow after me. Follow after me like your, your, your father David did. The Lord also appeared to Solomon after the temple was built, affirming the temple, saying that his presence was going to be there, but also telling him again, follow after me as your father David did, and if you turn away from me, there will be problems, and I will ultimately uproot this people from this land. So God has appeared to him twice. That is special, folks. How do I know it's special? Because Already from the Old Testament, we see, for instance, Abraham speaks to God face to face. Moses spoke to God face to face. Even in the interaction when, when Miriam and Aaron wanted to say that the, who is Moses to lead? Why can't they lead? God rebukes them and says that he has this special relationship with Moses. It's a special thing to have God speak to you. So here's Solomon, he has God speak to him on two occasions, but here's what blows your mind. He walks away from the Lord. God does the spectacular. And he walks away from the Lord. He walks away from the Lord. Blows your mind. He became angry because Solomon turned away from the one who appeared to him. So the Lord told Solomon, now you're wondering how does he tell Solomon here? Probably through a prophet. The Lord told Solomon that he will tear the kingdom out of the hand of his son. Now notice now, it's very interesting. For some reason he doesn't do it with Solomon. But he tells Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you, but I'm not going to do it during your time. I'll do it when your son becomes king. But he also makes the point, however, he will leave one tribe for the sake of his promise to David. Now remember, so did you understand what we're talking about when he says, I'll leave one tribe? Remember, there are 12 tribes, and there's already a rift that was taking place between the northern ten and the southern two, the southern two being Benjamin and Judah, the northern ten. And that was, remember, when, when uh, David was fleeing from Absalom and he was coming back and Judah uh, was there to meet them back and the ten were, were upset that they were not with them and bringing back the king. And that was the start of a problem. Well, we're going to see that that problem is going to continue on here. Well, here's what he's saying. 
He's saying, I'm going to tear the kingdom. Basically, ten are going to go away, but I'll leave one tribe besides Judah for the sake of David. So basically, it is a prophecy saying that because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom is going to divide. The kingdom is going to divide, but he will, because he told David there would be forever somebody on the throne in Jerusalem, he will leave one tribe for the sake of his promise to fulfill his promise to David. So what then follows after this is when we get to verse 14 through pretty much verse 40, we're going to see that God now raises up adversity. Now, remember, this has been a pattern from the very beginning. When Israel turns away from God, God punishes them by what? Raising up adversity. Raising up problems in their lives to get their attention, to get them to come back to the Lord. So we're going to see now that from verse 14 through verse 40 of chapter 11, that the Lord raises up three different people to cause a problem for Solomon. So even though he has all this grandeur and all this wisdom, he's got a problem, okay? So the first one we see is, is that the Lord raised up Hadad, a descendant of the king of Edom, as an adversary. So remember Edom? Solomon is kind of ruling over it. The reason why he's ruling over it is because Edom was defeated by David and Joab. Well, there is a descendant from the king of Edom who was killed, who is now an adversary. As a child, Hadad fled Egypt when Joab killed every male in Edom. The text very clearly says that when they defeated Edom, Joab went throughout all the land of Edom and killed every male, child and adult, killed every male. That was to subject the people, just left the women. Well, the text tells us that there were certain servants of the king, because Hadad was a child at this time, who grabbed the boy and fled to Egypt to the protection of Pharaoh to the protection of Pharaoh, and he was brought into the house of Pharaoh. Hadad found favor in the house of Pharaoh and married into Pharaoh's family. How did he marry into Pharaoh's family? Well, the text tells you that Pharaoh had a wife, and Hadad married the sister of Pharaoh's wife. So he's basically in the protection of Pharaoh, marries into the family. Now, Hadad... When he gets news from, from, from Israel, okay, Hadad requested to be released to return when news came that David and Joab was dead. And that's all the text tells us here. It doesn't go any further as far as his adversity, but it's letting you know that here's a guy who is not a fan of Israel, who is under the protection of Egypt, and now he wants to return to what? Cause problems. And we don't have anything more in the narrative. I've, I looked it up. Is Hadad mentioned anymore? Nope, this is the last place we're going to see that he's mentioned. But the point is, is that God raised up adversity with Hadad. That's the first guy. Now, there is a second guy, okay? The Lord raised up Rizun, who troubled Solomon as a raider out of Syria. So when David 
Okay, remember David when he killed the Aramean kings, which were these kings out of Syria, when he defeated them? Well, he defeated one area in particular, and there was a guy by the name of Rizan who basically became an adversary throughout the reign of Solomon as a raider. He basically raided and just created problems for Solomon the whole way. I mean, there's no way for him to defeat Solomon, but he just was like an irritating mosquito who's bothering you. That's the second guy. Now there's a third guy, and this guy comes from within Israel. And this guy, we're going to talk about him even further, even after the death of Solomon. And that's a fellow by the name of Jeroboam, who is an Ephraimite. So Jeroboam, an Ephraimite, rebelled against Solomon. And so what chapter 11 tells us is why he rebelled. It's very interesting, okay? While Jeroboam served Solomon as an officer, so he must have been an exceptional guy, because he becomes some sort of officer in the service of Solomon. So while he is serving Solomon as an off officer, he is visited by the prophet Ahijah. So he's visited by a prophet of the Lord whose name is Ahijah. Now Ahijah met him wearing a new garment and he took the garment that he was wearing and he tore it into 12 pieces. Now, again, when they gave their messages, oftentimes these prophets would use visual means to express the truth. So he's wearing a new garment, takes the new garment, rips it into 12 pieces. He gave Jeroboam 10 pieces and prophesied that the Lord will take 10 tribes from Solomon. Now we already know this because the Lord already told Solomon that he, that he would take the kingdom from Solomon's son but leave one tribe. So here he's just reiterating what the Lord says but he's telling Jeroboam. He gives him 10 pieces of this garment and prophesied that the Lord will take ten pieces, ten tribes from Solomon. Now again, he's going to explain why he's doing this. So the prophet says the Lord was doing this because they had forsaken the Lord to worship other gods. Forsaken the Lord to worship other gods. And so the Lord stated that he was giving the ten tribes of Jeroboam to Jeroboam and that he will become king over these ten tribes. And now this is interesting. This is like kind of like a prophecy of you're going to be the one who's anointed to be the king over these ten tribes. This is a special prophecy. And the reason why it's here, the narrative is telling you, this is why Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon, because of this prophecy. Now notice now, the Lord is selecting Jeroboam to do this, and the Lord called Jeroboam to walk in the ways in his ways as David did. So like he told Solomon, follow after me in the footsteps of your father, he's also telling Jeroboam, follow after me in, as David, King David did. 
He's calling him to follow him. Now here's what he promised. If Jeroboam walked in the Lord's ways, he would become a dynasty. A dynasty, what does that mean? Well, not just a short-term kingdom for only a couple of generations, but a generational dynasty like he had promised David. If Jeroboam would follow after the Lord. Now, we're going to see the reality of that in next week's lessons. Now, obviously, Solomon hears about this. So the record tells us, the writer tells us, that Jeroboam fled to Egypt because Solomon sought to kill him. Yeah, that's the way you get rid of the problem, right? Is, okay, this guy is supposed to take over, take the tribes, well, let's just get rid of him. That's the way they operated back then. Well, that brings us now to uh, the record of his death. So that's 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 41 through 43, as well as verse 29 to 31 of chapter 9 in 2 Chronicles. So the writer in Kings records where the acts of Solomon were recorded. So he's basically pointing out a couple of books that record the acts of Solomon. We don't have access to those books today. It does tell us this, that Solomon reigned over Israel in Jerusalem for 40 years. That's a significant period of time. And that's going to be very significant when you think about the reigns of some of these other kings in northern Israel and in the southern kingdom of Judah later. Some of them are not this long, although there are a few. It says that Solomon died and he was buried in the city of David. Solomon died, and he was buried in the city of David. And then the final thing that is recorded is that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, reigned in his place. And that really brings us to the end of our lesson today, folks. So next week, we're going to look at, well, the kingdom dividing. We're going to see the beginning of Rehoboam's reign. We're going to see the division of the kingdom, Jeroboam becoming the king of the northern kingdom. And uh, thus begins the plotting through first and second kings, second chronicles to where we get to the point of the Babylonian captivity a few centuries later. Now, I would encourage you as you think about this lesson to think about that there is consequences for our sins. And the reality is, as we see that in the lives here, God calls us to follow him and to walk in his ways. When we choose to do differently, we invite consequences. That definitely happened in Solomon's life. We're going to see that happening in Jeroboam's life as well.